Welcome to Keep the Faith, the bi-weekly podcast in which contemporary issues are explored through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The topic this week, as promised, is part two of our annual three-part series on the roadmap to repentance in the 21st century. The High Holy Days, after all, begin just three weeks from tonight at sundown, and we should be heavily into that accounting of our souls by now, that cheshbon hanefesh, that we need to do to prepare for them. As I said in part one, fortunately for us, the Torah readings that lead up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur provide us in a condensed, easily accessible form with the very information we need to do that stock-taking. They provide us with that roadmap to repentance in the 21st century. This week, we'll focus on our responsibilities to the poor and disadvantaged in our society, because those responsibilities play a huge role when viewed through the Torah's laws. First, some background. Poverty statistics for 2022 haven't been released yet. In 2021, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 37.9 million Americans lived below the poverty line. That's a poverty rate of 11.6%, meaning more than one in every 10 Americans lived below the poverty line two years ago. That rate was even higher for certain groups of people, including children, people of color, and women. Topping the list, though, were people with disabilities, That rate was 24.9%. In other words, virtually one in every four people in the United States in 2021, between the ages of 18 and 64, who suffered from a disability of some kind, lived below the poverty line. That's really disgraceful, considering that America is supposed to be the richest and most advanced nation in the world. Disgraceful, too, are these numbers from 2021. The poverty rate for African Americans was 19.5%. For Hispanics, it was 17.1%. For all women, regardless of race, it was 12.6%. The overall poverty rate, though, for white people in America was 8.1%. Then, There are the children under the age of 18. The overall poverty rate for them in 2021 was 15.3%. It had improved somewhat by year's end so that the December 2021 rate had dropped down to 12.1%, but then it got worse again just one month later. According to Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy, Child poverty rose to 17% in January 2022, an almost 5% jump in just 30 days. Over 3 million more children were added to the number of children living in poverty in just 30 days. That's likely because January 2022 marked the first month that the American Rescue Plan's expanded child tax credit monthly payments expired. Congress is to blame for it because it did nothing to extend that tax credit. Three million more children in just 30 days. 
The situation may be even worse today because Congress just this past February allowed the emergency allotments that had been added to the Enhanced Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP for short, to expire. 2021 as well, there were over 90 million people, 90 million people living in deep poverty here in the United States. That's over 27% of our total population. Nearly three people out of every 10 lived in deep poverty in 2021. Deep poverty is defined as living in a household with a total cash income that's below 50%, 50% of the poverty threshold. Hunger and poverty go hand in hand. If you don't have enough money to buy healthy, nutritious food regularly, you're going to go hungry, leading to so many more bad consequences. Making that worse is this. Two-thirds of those who are considered food insecure, that's the euphemism we use for hunger these days, two-thirds of them actually live above the poverty line. And so they're ineligible for the kinds of government programs that are available to the people who live at or below the poverty line. Although they don't have enough money for basic necessities, ample and nutritious food especially, they're on their own in getting help. There are organizations to help those people, but those organizations depend on our donations, making that problem our problem. Last year, 49 million people here relied on food banks in some way. That's over 14% of our total population. That brings me to two verses and Torah portions we've been reading these past few weeks in Deuteronomy, our roadmap to repentance in the 21st century. First, though, for those who haven't heard me explain this before, the Torah is a unified whole. It's not a bunch of separate verses strung together. One verse, for example, tells us we're forbidden to do any work on Shabbat, while another verse that's far removed from that one tells us we're supposed to live by the law, which also means we're not supposed to die because of the law. Because all of the Torah's laws are interdependent, there's no one without the other. So what we're being told in those two verses is that the laws of Shabbat must stand aside when there's even a potential danger to life. In fact, that principle applies to virtually every one of the Torah's laws. The preservation of life takes precedence over observance. That's important to know if we're to understand the true meaning of the two verses in question. The first verse under discussion appeared in the Torah portion we read on August 5th this year, known as Parashat Ekev. Because I want you to hear the three verbs that are operative in these two verses, I'll read the Hebrew before giving the translation. Here's how that verse reads in Hebrew, in part. The Ahalta, Visavata, Uverachta et Adonai Elohecha. Translated, this means, quote, having eaten and were satisfied, then you shall bless the Lord your God, unquote. The three verbs are Ahalta, eat, Savata, satisfy, and Verachta, bless. This commandment requires us to thank God for something we've just eaten, and especially to recite the Birkat Hamazon, the grace after meals, if what we ate included bread. 
There are other blessings if no bread is eaten, but the commandment to bless, the mitzvah to bless, remains the same. This commandment uses three verbs to make its point. One verb, too many. All it needed to say was the ahalta uverachta, having eaten, then you shall bless. We ate something, and we need to thank God for it. That's that. Since we're taught that the Torah doesn't waste words, that superfluous word that means, and we're satisfied, has to have a reason for being there. We find that reason in that second verse I mentioned, the one in the parsha known as Re'eh, which we read the following week on August 12th. That verse obliges us to make a special contribution that will be used to provide ample, nourishing food to the underprivileged and disadvantaged so that they won't ever grow hungry. As the verse puts it, they, quote, shall come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you, unquote. Now, hear that in Hebrew. V'achlu, v'sabeu, l'ma'an yivarechecha, Adonai Elohecha. The same three verbs, eat, satisfy, bless, are used in this verse just as they were used in that first verse, and they're used in exactly the same order. This is one of the Torah's ways of linking two phrases together. It's the Torah's way of telling us that the verse in Re'eh requires the verse from Ekev to be operative. There's no one without the other. There's a difference between the two verses, of course, but it's in that difference that we find the link between the two. In the Re'e verse, it's not we who eat and are satisfied, but the poor and the disadvantaged who do so. And rather than us blessing God for the food we eat, as in the first verse, now it's God who blesses us for the food we provide to those in need. But why would God bless us for doing what we're supposed to do in the first place? The answer is that feeding the hungry is not our job in the first place. It's God's job. Over and again, the Torah makes it clear that taking care of the less fortunate is God's job. Here's one example from Parshat Akiv on August 5th. Quote, For the Lord your God upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and befriends the stranger, providing them with food and clothing. Unquote. It's God's job. By linking the two verses together, we're told how God goes about doing that job. God does it through us. We're God's agents. God blesses us for doing God's work. In a sense, God blesses us for being God. In Jewish law, in halacha, a person's agent is legally considered to be the person he or she is representing. If our agent, for example, executes a contract on our behalf, we're considered to be the ones who executed that contract, not the agent, because the agent is us. So it is here. God keeps the promises God made to the poor. But God does so by making us God's agents. There's another aspect to this. In Achiv, the August 5th Torah portion, we're told that we must, quote, walk in all God's ways, unquote. Understand what that's saying. Because, as the text states, God, quote, upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger providing food and clothing, unquote. 
So must we do that for the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and, by extension, anyone else who's disadvantaged. Our sages of blessed memory put it this way, quote, Just as God is compassionate and merciful, so too should we be compassionate and merciful, unquote. That's actually another way of saying that we're God's agents. And the August 12th portion, Re'e, builds on that when it says this, quote, Be careful to heed all these commandments, doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord God, unquote. Doing what's good and right in God's sight means, in part, fulfilling our role as God's agents. It means even more than that, though, but that's for part three in two weeks. Anyway, now we begin to understand what satisfied really means in these two linked verses. It has nothing to do with having enjoyed our meal or feeling sated. Unless we've met God's responsibility to feed the food insecure before we sit down to our own meal, we can't satisfy the obligation God imposed on us. What right do we have to recite the grace after meals, the Birkat Amazon? Consider what we say about God in the first paragraph of the grace after meals. Quote, God feeds the entire world. God gives food to all flesh. For it is God who feeds and sustains all and benefits all. And it is God who prepares food for all God's creatures. Praised are you, Lord, who feeds all. Unquote. How can we say those words if they're not true? And how can those words be true unless we fulfill God's agency by feeding those who have no food of their own? Mind you, it's not enough to say that someone else is doing God's work, so we don't have to. Each and every one of us has to do our part. To say those words when we've done nothing to make them true is to commit a form of perjury, which is yet another sin we must atone for during the High Holy Days. Mind you, as well, merely feeding the poor isn't enough. It doesn't say, and they shall eat. It says, and they shall eat and be satisfied which, in the case of society's disadvantage, means that they've had a sufficiently filling, nutritious meal. The food we give them must be wholesome, nutritious, and satisfying in every way. Only then have we fulfilled God's agency. Only then are we privileged to recite the grace after meals. In America, at least, we could always try to get away with it by saying that we pay taxes, some of which we know are being used to feed the poor. That's not good enough, though. In normal times, the federal government spends only about 11% of its budget on domestic programs of all kinds that assist low-income individuals. Food programs are only a part of that 11%. Even if paying taxes were to fulfill the letter of the Torah's law, it still doesn't come close to fulfilling its spirit. In any case, it's no longer true if it ever was, how can it be true if so many Americans are food insecure? And by the way, one out of every six Canadians is also food insecure, according to Canada's official statistics. So this podcast applies to my listeners up north. The government can't do this on its own, not here and not in Canada and not anywhere else for that matter. We need to do our part. And so, this is one thing the roadmap for repentance in the 21st century is telling us. Yes, we are required to recite the grace after meals after we eat, but we're also required to first earn the right to recite it. And unless we've earned that right, 
we perjure ourselves and make God a liar as well when we recite the grace after meals. That's blasphemous. And blaspheming God is yet another sin for which we must atone. There are many ways to fulfill this particular mitzvah. We can donate to our local Jewish family services if there's one in our area, and it has a Meals on Wheels program or some other similar one. And perhaps if we have the time, we can also help deliver those meals. Nationally, we can make monthly or once-a-year donations to the Jewish-run Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger, or to the secular organization Feeding America. We can also help those living in food insecurity in Israel. And there are many of them, by the way. By donating to American Friends of Mayor Panim or to Leket Israel, among other groups, it's estimated that nearly 1 million Israelis, including some 665,000 children, were living in food insecurity during 2021. That translates to 16.2% of families and 21.1% of children living with food insecurity in Israel. One out of every five children. Of families with children, 19% experienced food insecurity, with 8.5% of them suffering from severe food insecurity. Also affected with the elderly, with 12% of those over the age of retirement in 2021 going hungry day after day. So, donating to help Israel's food insecurity problems is also part of the requirement because, after all, they are our extended family. As we're taught, all of Israel are responsible for each other. In our own communities here and in Canada, if we have the time, we can volunteer at a food bank or a soup kitchen, and we can bring unexpired and unopened food that we don't need to a local food bank. It's estimated that about 40% of food produced here in the United States is wasted and ends up in our landfills. Not only is that a crime in a moral sense, but it also actually violates a total law I'll be discussing next time about not destroying anything of value to anyone or anything animate or inanimate. Taking the unopened and unexpired food we don't need to a local food bank would have a big impact on that kind of inexcusable wastefulness. If we had a celebration of some kind with catered food, the untouched food should also be donated. If you can't figure out where to bring the unused catered food, bring it to a local police station or a fire station. They know our communities much better than we do. At least I hope they do. Whenever we're at the supermarket and the option is available at the checkout counters, we can also fulfill this mitzvah, at least in part, by buying one of those $3 or $5 food for the needy coupons they sell. One upscale supermarket in my area, King's Supermarket, also sells bags of groceries to be distributed to the poor. That's an even better option if it's available. If supermarkets in your area don't offer such options, talk to the manager or write to the store's parent company. If we do any of these things, we'll not only have improved our own lives by checking off one box on our roadmap, but we'll also be improving many other lives at the same time. There are other boxes that need checking as well. Since we've been dealing with the plight of the disadvantaged, we'll stick to that theme for now.
One of the things we read on August 5th in Parshat Ekev was this, quote, Remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to get wealth, unquote. The point of that statement is that those of us who have the means we need to live by need to understand that we have it because God gave it to us in part so that we can act as God's agents in a variety of areas, not just in providing food to the needy. For example, Moses says on God's behalf that, quote, there shall be no needy among you, unquote. But then he adds, quote, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all these misvote that I command you with, unquote. On its face, that's a strange statement, but it only gets stranger a bit further on. Quote, if, however, there is a needy person among you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against those among you who are needy. Rather, you must open your hand and lend them whatever is sufficient to meet their need. Give readily and have no regrets when you do so, for there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kin in your land, unquote. First it says that there shall be no needy among you, and then it says if there are, we need to help them because there will always be needy ones among us. This would make no sense if it wasn't for that extra phrase, quote, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all these mitzvot that I command you with, unquote. If we do what we're supposed to do, what God commands us to do, then there will still be people in need, of course, but we'll be there to help them obtain the basic necessities of life, including nutritious food, clothing, shelter, and so forth. The plight of the poor and the disadvantaged is a major concern of ours because it's a major theme throughout these Torah portions that make up our roadmap. And for the record, it doesn't matter who that poor and disadvantaged person is. Mitzvah after mitzvah here, commandment after commandment, stresses that the Torah's concern includes everyone in need. Whether that person is a relative of ours, a friend, a fellow citizen whom we've never even met, or even a stranger who's living among us. Here are some other of those laws in our roadmap. When we hire a poor and needy day laborer, for example, we're required to pay that person on that day, even before the sun sets, quote, for they are poor and they depend on it, unquote. By extension, this also means that we must pay all the people we employ in a timely fashion. It also means we can't say to that person, do this work for me now and I'll send you a check next week. Because the economy of ancient Israel was agriculturally based, some of the laws we're given here are couched in agricultural terms, but they apply generally. Several commandments, for example, forbid farmers from stripping their fields bare of the grain, fruits, and or vegetables they grow. Some of that produce must remain in the field for the poor and disadvantaged to collect. In preparing for the High Holy Days, we need to consider ways to give these laws practical application in our non-agricultural world today. Other laws in these Torah portions deal with loans we might make to someone in need and the pledges we take to secure those loans. The item pledge must not be something on which the person in need depends for his or her livelihood. We mustn't take a handyman's tools, for example, or a freelance writer's laptop or typewriter as a pledge. 
We also may not enter the person's home to obtain the pledged item, which would expose us to how that person lives. There's no need to embarrass that person any more than he or she is already embarrassed, and so the Torah forbids us from entering their homes. For us today, that translates into at all times when we interact with those in need, we must treat them with respect and allow them their dignity. This law, by the way, is also the Torah's way of guaranteeing everyone the right to privacy, but that's for another discussion. Often in the ancient world, the item being pledged was a piece of clothing, and it almost certainly would have been the best piece of clothing that needy person owned. In those days, it very likely was also the warmest piece of clothing he or she had, and therefore one that he or she would sleep in on a cold night. While we're allowed to take that garment in pledge, we're also required to return it to that person each day before the sun sets. And we must bring that pledge to him or her. We're not allowed to make that person come to us. The next morning, we must stand outside while the pledge is brought out to us, because he or she has a right to privacy. There's so much more to discuss regarding this roadmap to repentance in the 21st century, and God willing, we'll get to at least some of it in Part 3. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back from a next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcast. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. Current column deals with other aspects of the roadmap to repentance. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks in public no matter who tells you otherwise. And, above all, stay safe.